Uh, I want you to look with me at, at Proverbs chapter 4, just a few verses, and, and I'll read those um, for you in just a second. Um, Proverbs, as, as I'm sure you know, is a book of wisdom, uh, one of the wisdom books in, in the scriptures, and uh, wisdom is something that we need. We're not born with it, um, right? We're, we're actually born in a condition of sin which makes us fools rather than wise people. We're, we're actually fools by nature, and we need wisdom, and God gives this wisdom to us in the book of Proverbs, as well as in Ecclesiastes and Job and the Song of Songs. Um, and I think it's easy, it can be easy to, to look at Proverbs in, in a sort of a moralistic way, just sort of extracting some principles for living life well. I actually think Proverbs is bigger than that. It, it offers more than that, and that's what I'd like to look at uh, this morning. So let me read um, from Proverbs 4. The first 13 verses and then verses 20 to 23, and I'll pray and we'll, we'll be off and running. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland, and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not, be stum you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. And then verses 20 to 23. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful for, for all of it and everything from from the very first verses to the concluding verses, and, and we accept your word as a gift, and particularly as it, as it invites us into relationship with you and, 
and for our good, does seek to give us wisdom so that we might live well in this world that you've created. So be with us as we think about this portion of your word this morning. Grant us your spirit, as Mike has prayed, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, My new boss, um, Dr. Sean Lucas, and your probable new senior pastor, Dr. George Robertson, are both PhDs, and PhDs write books. Um, I'm not a PhD, and so I haven't written any books. But I have a working title for a book. Don't have the book, but I have a working title for it. And the working title for the book is The Gospel According to Rock and Roll, with the subtitle, Long on Analysis, but short on solutions. Long on analysis, short on solutions. Um, I'm, I'm a 60s kind of guy and uh, have listened to, to this genre of music across the decades and still am amazed at how insightful and penetrating and accurate rock and roll lyrics sometimes can be, how they how they actually do represent the human condition and crystallize the human condition uh, so accurately. I want to offer you a sampling of that from one of my favorite rock and roll singers. Actually, he's from Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where I went to school. Bob Seeger, I don't know if that name rings any bells for some of the younger guys here. But this is from a song uh, entitled The Fire Inside, and and it's a song that I actually just stumbled onto several years ago, and again was was really stunned at, at the lyric. There's a hard moon rising on the streets tonight. There's a reckless feeling in your heart as you head out tonight. Through the concrete canyons to the midtown light, where the latest neon promises are burning bright. Isn't that a great line? Where the latest neon promises are burning bright. You're out on the town, safe in the crowd, ready to go for the ride, searching the eyes, looking for clues. There's no way you can hide the fire inside. You've been to the clubs and the discotheques where they deal one another from the bottom of a deck of promises, where the cautious loners and emotional wrecks do an acting stretch as a way to hide the obvious. The lights go down and they dance real close, and for one brief instant they pretend they're safe and warm. Then the beat gets louder and the mood is gone, the darkness scatters as the lights flash on, They hold one another just a little too long, and they move apart and then move on, onto the street, onto the next, safe in the knowledge that they tried, faking the smile, hiding the pain, never satisfied, the fire inside. And this is the heartbreaking verse in this song. Now the hour is late, and he thinks you're asleep. You listen to him dress, and you listen to him leave like you knew he would. 
You hear his car pull away in the street. Then you move to the door and you lock it when he's gone for good. And then you walk to the window and stare at the moon riding high and lonesome through a starlit sky. And it comes to you how it all slips away. Youth and beauty are gone one day. No matter what you dream or feel or say, it ends in dust and disarray. Like wind on the plains, sand through the glass, waves rolling in with the tide. Dreams die hard and we watch them erode. But what cannot be denied is the fire inside. It's a haunting lyric, and, and you hear in it, at least I hear in it, the longing for something, right? And the ache, and it's a longing for life. It's a longing for wholeness. It's a longing for meaning. It's a longing for substance, for something that would assuage the ache and speak to the pain. Let me, let me just suggest to you that that's really what Proverbs offers. It offers something bigger than just moralisms or techniques or gimmicks for living life. Let me suggest to you that there are three things in this, in this passage that we've read. There is in the first place, and most significantly, I think, an invitation to life the thing we all most deeply long for. And then, and then there's the key to life, invitation to life and the key to life, and then finally the source of life, those three things. First, the invitation to life. I don't know if you heard it, if you listened closely as we read the passage, but the words life and live occur five times, at least five times in those verses. The admonition is the admonition of a father to his son or fathers to their sons to hear what the father has to say, to hear what these fathers have to say. And this is, this is the thing the fathers are seeking to communicate to the sons. Verse 4, he taught me and said to me, this is the father speaking about his father as he speaks to his son. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Verse 10, hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Verse 13, keep hold of instruction, do not let go, guard her, for she is your life. My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them. And then verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What is Proverbs offering? What are these opening chapters inviting people to? They're inviting us into life. The writers of, of these Proverbs, not only Solomon, but the others, there are some others, a group called the Wise, and then a couple of people named Adjur and, and Lemuel. You run into them later in the book. Again, these writers are not interested in just producing moralistic people, people who like moralistic machines just sort of churn out moralistic lives. They're interested in life. 
They care about life. And they understand that to live in God's world, in God's way, according to God's wisdom, is actually not burdensome. It may be difficult, it may be hard, but it's not burdensome. It's actually life-giving to move in the direction of the wisdom of God is to move in the direction of life. Remember who wrote this book, too, or at least wrote much of it. I think this is significant. Remember that, that Solomon is the one who wrote much of this book. And Solomon, as you know, wrote, wrote another book. He wrote Ecclesiastes. It's another book of wisdom. It's an autobiographical book. It's a book in which he discloses to his readers his pursuit of meaning, his pursuit of satisfaction, his pursuit of true pleasure, his pursuit of joy. And he was in a position as king, king in Israel. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 tells us that he was king over Israel. He was in a position as king to pursue whatever he wanted. He had all of the resources necessary to pursue anything he wanted to pursue. And he tells us in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. No holds barred. Enjoy yourself. And then he, and then he proceeds to, to chronicle or to list for us all of the ways in which he tested himself with pleasure, with laughter, with wine, with great architectural projects, with gardens and parks, with great pools from which to water the forests. He says, I owned slaves. I had people waiting on me hand and foot. Great herds and flocks, silver and gold, singers and many concubines which is, of course, women, many women. And he withheld nothing from himself. And his assessment, I know you know this, you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, his assessment at the end of his quest, it was madness. It was emptiness, folly, vanity. If we could all translate the experience of Solomon into categories that we would understand. Solomon has been to the grove. Solomon's university has won the national championship repeatedly. Solomon has tickets to the Masters. Solomon's a member at Augusta National. Solomon owns Augusta National. He has the perfect body. He has the perfect face. He has the perfect bank account. He has the perfect woman. In fact, he has the perfect women, as many as he wants. And he doesn't have to use the internet to get them. They live in his palace. And by the way, his palace, I did a 
a rough calculation. Somebody who's a numbers guy is going to correct me on this. But if you read, if you read 1 Kings chapter 7, which is the narrative of Solomon building his own house, the main house was over 11,000 square feet. But he had some other buildings too. He had, he had a building the same size for his wife, at least his first wife, who was the daughter of Pharaoh. That's up to 22 or 23,000 feet. He had a couple of other buildings that were over 3,000 square feet. It wasn't a shack. What would you do with the wealth of Bill Gates? What would you do with the wealth of Warren Buffett? Solomon had all of that. Younger guys here, Solomon had everything you aspire to. Everything you aspire to. Everything you long for. And what was his assessment? At the end of the day, it was madness. It was folly. It was a striving after wind. The contrasting phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes are life under the sun and life that God gives, and life under the sun, life detached from God, is vanity. It's empty. It's a striving after wind. In fact, it's death. Life detached from God is death. Solomon says so himself, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, and the end of it is death. Read these books. Read Ecclesiastes. You can read it in one sitting. Read Proverbs. Take, take some time and just read the first eight or nine chapters of Proverbs. And as you read them, try to remember Try to remember that these books of wisdom are much, much more than the fruit of the efforts of some wise guys culling from all of the possible sources of wisdom that they could identify, culling from all of those sources of wisdom, a kind of an edited down version of all of that for their own benefit and the benefit of others. As you read these books, try to remember that behind Solomon and Adjur and Lemuel and the wise, try to remember that there's another author. There's a greater author. And the greater author is the father, the ultimate father, who's speaking to his children. And he speaks to his children because he loves his children. And what he wants his children to understand is that there's an order to the world. Woven into the fabric of Proverbs is this presupposition that God is really there and that he really speaks. And he speaks out of concern for and love for his children because there's an order to the world. There's a way that the world works. And God speaks to his children as they find themselves in the midst of that world so that they might live life well, certainly to his glory and for his honor, but in a way that is beneficial to them. There's a greater father behind this book. The infinite 
personal triune God who is really there. And this this wisdom comes from him. And he gives it so that life might be lived well, so that we might know life and not death. This invitation to life that you find in Proverbs isn't limited to the Proverbs. It's all throughout the scripture. Psalm 1611, you have shown me the path of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, and your presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb is the word of God, is the law of God. Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come, everyone who thirsts. I want to I sit down with Bob Seeger. I want to sit across the table from him. I want to say, say, Bob, we're contemporaries, we're peers. How's it been working for you, really and truly? You hear this invitation, you're thirsty, Bob. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Read these verses and I can't help but think of this this very famous, this well-known comment by C.S. Lewis from his essay, The Weight of Glory. It's brilliant. When we consider the unblushing promises of reward which we find in the Gospels and even throughout the whole of the Bible, when we consider the unblushing promises of reward which we find in the Gospels, it would seem our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We fool about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like children playing with mud pies in the street who cannot imagine the idea of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Or his complimentary observation, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Can we put it this way? If in my quest for life I find that nothing I possess delivers the life I long for deep in my bones, doesn't it make sense that I'd start looking someplace else? And that's what Proverbs is offering. It's offering life. For some of you, this is a reminder. You know this is true. You just need to be reminded that it's true. For some of you, it it may be a challenge It may be a challenge to your your worldview and the categories that are in place in your head that, that that are crying out to you, this is where life is to be found. 
Proverbs is, is telling us that wisdom, life-giving wisdom, is to be found in the God who made us and who knows where life is to be found. The question is, will we believe it? Will we really believe it? So there's an invitation to life in Proverbs. That's the first and probably the longest of the points. But then there's this second thing. There's a key to life, the invitation to life, and then the key to finding life and to holding on to it. That's the second thing that emerges from Proverbs 4, and the key to life is the heart. Did you hear it? Verses 20 and 21. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Keep the heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We're complex characters as human beings. We're rational, at at least a good bit of the time we're rational, which means we're thinking creatures. We're volitional creatures. We act, we do things. We are also affective creatures. We have affections. We have desires and emotions and longings. But according to the Bible, beneath our cognition and our rational capabilities, beneath our volition, our capacities to choose, beneath our affections, our desires and longings, beneath all of that is the heart. Seventy-five times in the book of Proverbs, the heart is referenced. That's a lot in 31 chapters. In the Bible, the heart is the the command center. It's it's the wellspring. It's the part of our humanity that explains us, that, that makes us who we really are. It's where thinking actually finds its rootedness. I love the old King James rendering of Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's the place where actions are born. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Proverbs 4 tells us Jesus taught the same thing. Our affections, our desires, our longings are born in our hearts. Matthew 12, 33 to 35, the tree is known by its fruit. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The heart is the thing we're being admonished to pay attention to. And we need to pay attention to our hearts because our hearts are in trouble. Right? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? For years, just as an aside, for years I used Jeremiah 17, 9 as the basic text for homilies in weddings. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Try preaching that to the mother of a bride standing before you. Your daughter's heart 
is wicked and deceitful. It doesn't go over well. But it's what the scriptures teach about us. That our hearts are deceitful, again, beneath our acting, beneath our thinking, beneath our affections and desires are these hearts of ours. The point is, if we would have life, we had better pay attention to our hearts. What does it mean to keep the heart? Examine it. Assess it. We're not good at this in this culture. We, we just move from activity to activity, don't we? we? We move from bullet point to bullet point on the to-do list. We're not, we're not good at stopping and examining our hearts, assessing our hearts, paying attention to our hearts, asking questions of our hearts. Where does my heart lead me? Where is it taking me? Do I want life? Do I really want life? Then I would do well to listen to my heart. David Paulison is on the staff of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. It's a ministry that's closely connected to Westminster Seminary, where Dr. Robertson actually earned his PhD in historical theology. He and Ed Welch, who's another guy on the staff there, are two of, in my estimation, the most insightful Christian counselors around, and I encourage you to get their books, David Paulison, Ed Welch. David Paulison is cited in another book that I think you would do well to have on your shelves if you don't. It's a book by Tim Keller entitled Counterfeit Gods, subtitled The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. And Keller quotes Paulison in this connection, in connection with this with this discipline, if you will, of looking at our hearts and, and examining our hearts. And this is what Paulison writes. The most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust and preoccupation and loyalty and service and fear and delight? Questions bring some of people's idle systems, I. D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, idle systems to the surface. To whom or to what do you look for life-sustaining stability, for security, for acceptance? What do you really want out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success. These questions or similar ones tease out whether we serve God or idols and whether we look functionally for salvation from Christ to something else or not. You hear what Paulison is saying. He's, he's, he's in lockstep with the author of Proverbs. What am I really trusting for life? What am I really trusting for meaning? What would happen to me if I lost something? What happens to me when I, when I pray for something 
or I work hard for something and I don't get it? Is it a disappointment and I move on or does it lead to despair and fear or anger? What do you daydream about? What fills your unoccupied mind? What do you do with your solitude when you're alone? Where does your heart take you? How do you spend your money and why? Why does your money go in the directions that it goes? These are ways of being self-diagnostic and and seeking to get at where our hearts really are. And this is what we do to guard the heart and to keep the heart, to watch the heart. Notice this. And this is, I think, an important thing for us to acknowledge as Presbyterians, people who are theologically reformed, at least I assume some of you are in this room. We pride ourselves on what we know. We pride ourselves in in dotting the I's and crossing the T's. We pride ourselves in our knowledge of God. But notice, the book of Proverbs doesn't tell us to keep our minds. It admonishes us to keep our hearts. It doesn't admonish us to keep our wills. It admonishes us to keep our hearts. It doesn't even admonish us to guard our affections our desires and longings. It asks us to look deeper. It asks us to look at our hearts. Why? Because life is at stake. Life is at stake here. My grandfather was a very successful man, just like many of you in this room. Many of of the men at both of our churches have been extremely successful. My grandfather was a very successful businessman. And I sat with him in his living room when he was 79 years old and he was dying of prostate cancer. And he said, those things don't seem to matter very much now, do they? See, life is at stake here, brothers. So the authors of Proverbs want for us to understand that God invites us into life and that the key The key to gaining that life and the key to preserving that life is our hearts. And then there's this last thing, and that is the source. What is the source of life? And you know know the answer to that, don't you? You know the answer to life, the source of life is God himself. It's interesting in this book of Proverbs that over 100 times in in 100 of the sayings or Proverbs, God is mentioned. But only a dozen of them use references like Adonai or El Shaddai, those Hebrew words that refer to God's power and majesty. Almost all of the references to God in the book of Proverbs use the personal covenantal name of God. The name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The name that was revealed to Abraham in Genesis 12 when Abram was called by God into covenant relationship. It's the only name that God ever uses when he interacts with Abraham is this personal covenantal name. And why did God call Abram to himself? 
He called Abram to himself to give him life. He called Abram to himself out of darkness, out of paganism, out of death in Mesopotamia in order to give him life. Why did God call Israel out of bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt? Why did God bring Israel to himself at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, where he he wed her to himself, he married her, he made her his bride and told her that he would make her his treasured possession? Why did he do that? To give her life. Because he's the source of life. Where does this Where does this God of of covenant love and covenant faithfulness most clearly manifest his desire to give life to those whom he loves in the gift of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus come? Brothers, why did Jesus come? John 10.10, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. Now look, I get, I get that we live in a broken, sin-plagued, tortured world. I get that. It's that world into which Jesus comes. It's that world into which Jesus speaks these words. I've come into this world that you might have life and have it in abundance. And brothers, that's where history is headed. History is headed in the direction of the second coming of Jesus and the final restoration of everything, the fixing of everything that is broken. All of history is headed in the direction of that beautiful scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is sitting on Sam Gamgee's bed, and Sam doesn't really realize what's happened. He's he's awakened from this expedition in which the the great ring has finally been destroyed, but things are just coming into focus for him. And, And he looks at Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, is everything sad finally coming untrue? And Gandalf smiles and says, yes. That's where life is headed, folks. It's headed in the direction of everything sad finally coming untrue. Jesus returning and putting everything right. Fulfilling the offer of John 10.10. Lavishly distributing, distributing life in all of its fullness upon those who seek him. Who's the source of life? The God of heaven and earth, who in the Lord Jesus Christ has secured life for us, for all who would trust in him. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you you just need to be reminded and encouraged. I don't know if you need to be warned. Maybe there's somebody in this room for whom This invitation is absolutely new and fresh. Wherever you are, this is what I'd have us understand. God invites us into life, wants us to be honest with ourselves and examine our hearts. 
and understand that he himself in the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of life. It's Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Pray with me, if you would. Lord Jesus, thank you. Um, as Philippians does remind us, that you, you did not regard your position with your Father, the honor of it, the majesty of it, the security of it, you didn't regard all of that as something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself of all of that privilege and power and majesty and glory. And you humbled yourself, even to the point of death on a cross, that any and all who trust in you would know life, forgiveness, freedom, and life. I pray for my brothers here this morning. I pray for myself. But as we leave this morning, we would know that you mean what you say, that your word can be trusted. And I pray for each of us that you'd give us the grace necessary more and more each day to look to you and to look away from the, the paltry and empty neon promises of this life. Give us grace, Lord Jesus, to seek you in all of your life-giving beauty, we pray. Bless my brothers as they go this morning. And we pray in your name. Amen.